How would Israelites have understood their nation's covenant relationship with Yahweh? Dr. Robert Miller II offers a study of the Old Testament language of covenant within its ancient context, especially in light of Assyrian ideology. His study reveals that covenant really meant grace. Tune in as we talk with Robert Miller about this important theological concept, covenant and grace, in the Old Testament. You're listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Robert D. Miller II earned his Ph.D. in Hebrew Bible from the University of Michigan and is Associate Professor of Old Testament at the Catholic University of America and Research Associate with University of Pretoria, South Africa. His books include Chieftains of the Highland Clans, Oral Tradition in Ancient Israel, Covenant and Grace in the Old Testament, and The Dragon, the Mountain, and the Nations. Robert teaches courses in Old Testament, the Ancient Near East, and Archaeology. Robert, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. So, Robert, how did you come to write this book on covenant and grace in the Old Testament? Well, I had been fascinated for some time with the idea of covenant. I had written even a paper in in graduate school about George Mendenhall's work on covenant. Uh, I did my Ph.D. at the University of Michigan, and although I met Mendenhall, he had finished Uh, teaching and retired by the time I was there. But I was fascinated by his connections between covenant and treaty forms in the ancient Near East. And so I wanted to have a a look at the relationship of Israel's description of its relationship with God to the kind of uh, discourse that was going on in the ancient Near East myself. And I started out thinking I would be writing a book about covenant and the nature of covenant, um, what I found is that covenant wasn't even really the best term for what I was looking at. And so I came to call this covenant and grace and the, the hidden meaning or the hidden interpretation is covenant or rather grace in the Old Testament. The opening chapter of your book surveys the history of scholarship on covenant, a study which in itself makes the book worthwhile reading. Obviously, we cannot get into the intricate details of that study here, but what are some of the problems or challenges historically with understanding the whole notion of covenant in the Old Testament? Part of the issue is that scholars got really preoccupied with the dating of covenant and with a a large debate between groups of scholars who thought the best analogies for the covenant, and by that I broadly mean the way Israel understood its relationship with God, uh, between people who thought the best analogies in the ancient world were from the 14th and 13th century BC, uh, in the Hittite world especially, and those who thought the best analogies were from the maybe the 8th century BC in the Assyrian world. And you can line up multiple scholars on both sides uh, Mendenhall was the famous exponent of the earlier view, and in some ways it's been discredited, but in other ways I just found that entire debate to really distract from a serious investigation into what the covenant actually meant. And at the same time, I saw among theological writers uh, a tendency to just assume an awful lot about covenant, that covenant is a list of obligations that God set out and the people were bound by these. And sometimes 
God initiated the covenant on his own. Sometimes the people entered into the covenant on their own. But in either case, you had uh, laws. You had a, 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 and, and there's a contrast based on a rather surface, I think, reading of, of St. Paul. Old Testament was law. New Testament is grace. And uh, the covenant is um, a covenant of, a, of laws that people had to adhere to. And on an even more popular level, there were tendencies I saw in both Protestant and Catholic circles to place that understanding of Old Testament covenant at the center of a, of a new sort of Christian theology that was almost raising once again law or a, an administrative covenant or a primacy of law to great importance for practicing Christians today. And so I, I was seeing this in, um, in reform groups that sometimes call themselves theonomous or federal vision. But we in, in the Catholic Church, we have a lot of proponents of this as well, of uh, seeing the primacy of the covenants as the relationship of law with God is really the key to understanding how people today should be relating to God. Now, you suggest that we can understand the nature of Israel's relationship with Yahweh actually by becoming more familiar with Assyrian propaganda. Can you explain that for us, how Assyrian propaganda opens a window for us into Israel's relationship with Yahweh? Yeah, and here I was um, again building on the work of other people who've tried to who've seen a lot of relationships between uh, Assyrian literature, Assyrian propaganda, and different parts of the Bible, and um, not just with the covenant. I mean, even in uh, the book of Isaiah, Peter Machinus has written on this, and and uh, scholars 20 years ago were, were already writing on this. Ernest Levinson, and, or sorry, Ernest Nicholson, Bernard Levinson, all sorts of scholars have talked about a period of time when Israel seems to have been borrowing language from the Assyrian world. It had been used to talk about covenant before in arguing that certain Assyrian treaty forms were borrowed in Deuteronomy. I was convinced that we're in the right time period, but we're looking at the wrong Assyrian texts. So let me sort of explain what was happening. And by per time period, let's think 740 to 610 BC. Most of that time, Israel and Judah got along very well with Assyria. It's only late in that time period and during one or two episodes in, in the middle that there was conflict. Israel and Judah alike had long periods of good relations uh, with Assyria. But the Assyrians had expanded their field of influence from northern Iraq across the Near East. And they wanted not only to have puppet kings and vassals, but to indoctrinate those uh, nations or, or subordinate nations with their own ideology. And we have some inscriptions that come out of what you might think of as the, the armpit of what's now Turkey. So that, that small little crux there. There were a number of small little kingdoms in there in the late 700s that fell under the overlordship of Assyria. And we have a lot of texts from there. 
And I looked at two texts in particular from a little tiny country called Samal that are written by a king who was a vassal of the Assyrians, and he has clearly absorbed a lot of their ideology. And he talks about how wonderful it is to be a vassal of this powerful emperor. For me, this was an example of Assyrian propaganda as received by Western Asia. And I had it in a language called Aramaic, which is very closely related to Hebrew. If we assume that all of the vassals of Assyria were treated similarly and that many of them responded similarly, uh, one scholar describes it as that they weren't cowering in their palaces. They were um, walking the streets of Nineveh, fingering the tapestries and, and uh, with their eyes uh, wide open, taking in the luxury. Uh, then presumably the people in Israel and in Judah would have received the Assyrian propaganda the same. And the reason I thought this is because when I looked at these two inscriptions, I saw motif after motif that I knew was in the Bible, that I knew was especially in Deuteronomy. Sometimes exact phrases in the cognate wording from the Aramaic of these two texts to different passages, mostly in Deuteronomy, some of them in what scholars call the Deuteronomistic history. So that's Joshua, Judges, and First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings, which are somehow related to Deuteronomy. All of these are texts that are coming out of the same circle of authors, and it looks to me like they've also been receiving this Assyrian propaganda. But the difference is, they're using it not to talk about how great it is to serve the Assyrian emperor, but how great it is to serve God, how great it is to serve Yahweh. From the Israel, Israelite standpoint, they have to describe their relationship with God somehow. They're borrowing images, they're borrowing metaphors, and what they're borrowing is language that the Assyrians have kind of foisted on them. I don't think they're doing this to somehow say, we don't serve Assyria, we rather serve Yahweh. I think they're just, they like the language, it makes sense to them, and they're using it to describe their relationship with God. So if I can just sort of go through some of, uh, I mean, let's say six examples, in, and you can put them into sort of a, a two-sentence phrase. They say, the Lord of the four quarters of the earth, and you see this phrase both in these Assyrian, well, you actually see it in the original Assyrian documents. Then you see it in these West, uh, West Asian uh, inscriptions, and then you see it in the Old Testament. The Lord of the four quarters of the earth raised up his lowly servant, and the word for lowly and the word for servant are exactly the same in these uh, North Syrian inscriptions and in the Bible. And then, uh, and he did this by grace. You get a, a word for grace used in both cases. He set them in the midst of great kings. Uh, and then again, the he, who's the he? The he is either the Assyrian emperor in these inscriptions, but for the biblical authors, it's Yahweh. He seated them on a throne. He set them in the midst of great kings. And I, I, the vassal king, or I, the pious Israelite, responded with righteousness. 
And it's the same term being used, tzedakah, for righteousness in both these uh, these uh, Aramaic inscriptions from northern Syria and in the biblical text. So they've described their relationship with God exactly the way this minor king in this tiny little country in northern Syria described his relationship with the Assyrian emperor. And they've done that because it's a way to express their relationship to, to God that's very poetic for them. Now, for many people who understand covenant in the Old Testament, primarily in terms of legalism or works-related conditions, your book comes as a radically new paradigm. How would your view of Israel's gracious relationship with God square with some New Testament passages like Galatians 3.12, which says, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them? Yeah, I mean, I'm not necessarily arguing that everyone in the time of St. Paul actually understood the covenant in the Old Testament correctly. But I do think we may have misread Paul also. But let me start with the the Old Testament itself. Once we see that these are the terms by which Israel uh, chooses to um, lay out their relationship with God, it, first of all, it downplays or at least delays emphasis on the rules and puts first and foremost the experience of God's saving acts. That's first. Just as the vassal of the Assyrian emperor was raised up by grace from his lowliness, Israel, God has chosen in the Exodus, for example, when they are miserable, when they are lowly, he's raised them up by his free election. The law then comes in as an extension of election, and the laws of the Sinai Covenant are given there. They're always presented with a reminder of that election. So even the Ten Commandments, the first line of Exodus chapter 20 is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt from the house of bondage. That's the first of the commandments, actually, in the Jewish numbering, and you shall have no gods before me, is number two in the traditional Jewish numbering. The first commandment is what God did for you. But all of the places in Deuteronomy 26 and in Deuteronomy 6 where this is presented, first you get the relationship with God, which is on God's initiative, and then that's followed by laws that come from that relationship. The righteous relationship is still there, just as it's there in these Assyrian inscriptions, but the righteous relationship is something that Israel is called to rather than um, rather than something that is necessary for their acceptance by God. They're accepted by God first, and then he calls them to tzedakah, or righteousness. Now, when you look at that then in the terms of the New Testament, uh, I I do think that um, scholars who are, um, they sometimes go under the term of of the uh, new version of Paul or new understanding of Paul, uh, that Paul himself is not accusing his uh, Jewish counterparts of thinking that they were uh, justified or thinking that they were called 
because of their righteous actions. Paul understood and all of the first century Jews understood that they were called first, that they were chosen first by God, that they're elected for no merit on their own part. Then living as a part of that covenant community or living as part of that relationship with God has certain expectations. But all along, I think Israel understood that in order to fulfill those expectations, you have to be in connection with God, that there's always going to be grace that's necessary in order to um, in order to satisfy full righteousness. So when Paul says the law is not of faith, but rather one who uh, does them shall live by them, the ability to do them and the ability to live by them comes from the election. And it doesn't, we're not saying the law doesn't exist, but the law itself is almost a product of the relationship with God that comes first. In your last chapter, Robert, entitled The Triumph of Grace, you offer some theological reflections from the Bible based on your study. And your last sentence summarizes that theology by saying that, quote, relationship with God is entirely grace, and that is a far greater obligation than covenant. Would you explain for us what you mean there? Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm looking at that, and I see I have it footnoted to John Henry Newman, uh, Anglican uh, thinker of the um, late seven, late 18th and early 19th century who then converted to Catholicism. So uh, my, my thinking here is that grace can be a very dangerous thing uh, because to be in relationship with God, um, that relationship can be worked out in both blessing and curse. I think through uh, the end of the book of Deuteronomy, where there are blessings for obedience to the law and curses for disobedience. And this is, again, an example of thinking, well, isn't that just works there? And you do good, you get good. Uh, and if you do bad, you're out. But it's quite explicit that you're not out. There is no out of this covenant because the covenant is really grace. It's election from God. Israel if they're disobedient, will receive the punishments of Deuteronomy as a member of that covenant partnership. If you read forward, let's say, into the book of Judges, by the time of the Judge Samuel, it's very clear that Israel wants out of the covenant completely. Uh, when Samuel or Samson, I'm sorry, tries to redeem Israel, uh, the Men of Judah say to Samson, don't you know the Philistines are our overlords? Just be quiet. Leave us alone. We're quite happy to be Philistines. You can't get out of this relationship that easily. If you're in this relationship with God that is based on his election, then you're sort of in it for better or worse. And in that, in their case there, they're in it whether they like it or not. And there's they're experiencing some of the curse phase rather than the blessing phase. And the other example I would think of is, is Abraham. So Abraham is a prime example of uh, a person who is called by God for no reason. He's not 
given certain conditions that he has to fulfill in order to maintain God's good graces. But nevertheless, God can then ask anything of him, including even the sacrifice of his own son. So what writers like Newman and uh, Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, who in the uh, 21st century have written is that grace is amazing in that it's, uh, but it doesn't mean that it's always fluffy. It doesn't mean that it's always pleasant to be in this relationship with God. You're called, you're elect, you're part of his mission uh, for better or worse. And um, there may be times even that it would be easier to be in a covenant where you had four requirements. And if you didn't fulfill those four, you were out and God couldn't think up a fifth. Love fulfills the law. So even in a relationship like motherhood, where there's lots of duty and work, it's not necessarily a legalistic relationship or one conditioned by works. Yes. And one of the things I have in a footnote here, but when I teach this, I often use the analogy of a marriage. Uh, I think that some people who have uh, focused on covenant in the wrong way have overemphasized the, the parental father-son uh, analogy, but the marriage analogy that Israel used repeatedly, I think, is much better. And in the marriage covenant, it's um, even if you had a prenuptial agreement, you don't spell out, okay, you will cook dinner on the even numbered days, I will cook dinner on the odd numbered days, I'll walk the dog, you will take out the trash. You, you don't spell out the obligations. But that doesn't mean there aren't obligations. In fact, the fact that they aren't listed means that there are even more. And that rightly, someone who never took out the trash and never made the dinner and never walked the dog could be accused by the other of, of not doing their part. There are still expectations. They're just not listable in the way that, that we usually think of a, a treaty. Well, Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and to talk about your book, Covenant and Grace in the Old Testament. Before we let you go, can you let us know about any other projects that you might be working on? I'm working on a book now that's nearly finished on a number of references in the Old Testament that say, uh, the Lord marches from the south, Yahweh comes from the desert. And these are not passages about the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. There's, there's something else. And I think they're tied to references in the Pentateuch to people other than Israelites who worship God, such as uh, Moses's father-in-law. My investigation is, were there, was there worship of the God Yahweh in Northwest Arabia prior to the existence of Israel that's showing up in both the character of Moses' father-in-law Jethro and in these poetic passages, the Lord comes from the south. So would this be by contrast to Zaphon, the mountain in the north? Yes, exactly. And, and I'm, as you know, I've written on a lot of God's northern elements, but they, that doesn't account at all for the name Yahweh. And the name Yahweh has a clear association with the desert south. So that's what I'm investigating now. We'll look forward to that book. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. All right, friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, as we've listened to Robert D. Miller discuss his book Covenant and Grace in the Old Testament. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.